Hi folks, a shout out this week to Sharon Pask, who did a review of the Take On Board podcast. Thanks, Sharon. She says, gender pay gap episode, very informative session with Emma Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you, Sharon, for taking the time to do a review. We love to get reviews here. And thanks to Emma for doing that episode. Second announcement for this week. This week we're hearing from Kari Hatch. And listen right through to the end of the episode where she shares resources because not only does she share some resources in the episode itself, but sent me a voice memo afterwards with some additional ones. So there's some gold in there. Radio on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Take On Board podcast, where we talk all things boards and governance. I'm your host, Halia Svensson. Being on a board can be interesting, valuable and exciting, yet it can also be really lonely, challenging and hard. So here at Take On Board, we'll bring you weekly tips, tricks and advice to help you build your governance wisdom. We'll shine a light on how to navigate your way onto your first board or to build your board portfolio. We'll also help you to work through those challenges that keep you awake at night. Each week, I'll talk to women who have been there, done that, and together we'll discover what we need to take on board to be your best in the boardroom. Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'll be speaking with Kelly O'Callaghan about governance challenges and one of her passions, putting consumers at the heart of governance and boards engaging with community stakeholders. We'll also touch on the importance of boards feeling uncomfortable and embracing disruptors and non-traditional leaders. First, let me tell you a little bit about Kelly. Kelly is recognised for her strong leadership in health, community, services and governance. She's a well-respected community leader and influencer with a passion for health consumer and community engagement. Kelly served for many years as the chair of Regional Health Service Board, is a long-serving elected councillor and former mayor and has served on a range of state boards and committees. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Kelly. Helia, great to be talking to you once again. Kelly, before we talk about governance challenges today, we've heard your official bio, but I know there's so much more to you. So can you just tell me a little more about you? Absolutely. I'm a governance geek. I love the stuff. I like being in boards, around boards, talking about boards and problem solving with boards, which is what I do most of the time at the moment, uh, most of the work that I do in and about with a range of, of boards and directors is around problem solving. So when things get to that pointy end of difficulty, when boards have tried to work through some of their problem solving mechanisms and it's just got that little bit too difficult, and also when some of their engagement with their stakeholders, whether it be their consumers or their broader networks, have broken down mm. and they really need to re-engage and, and find ways through some difficult challenges, I find that that's the point where you really do get a level of insight to the structural capacity of boards in themselves, but also individual directors mm. and some of their strengths. So for me, I, I love all of the board-related governance activity. I do enjoy having the opportunity to look at the differences between appointed and elected mm. representatives in terms of governance. So I sit across both of those areas and enjoy the differences that that presents, some of them being a little more forward-facing and 
I guess, uh, disruptive in a number of the ways they sit in relation to governance. But for me, I think the role of boards and the role of governance in providing clear decision-making frameworks, uh, exceptionally high standards of compliance, risk oversight, but also some great ways to engage directly with communities and stakeholders around how organisations work is really where I sit in terms of the stuff that I do. What I do also enjoy immensely is working in rural and regional communities and trying to dig down a bit and find, I guess what I describe as non-traditional leaders in relation to governance, try to draw out those people who've got exceptional skills, an exceptional level of awareness in terms of what their communities and their organisations may need, because they may already be part of organisations, and really bring them more formally into a governance setting and create some pathways for them as well. But uh, I hang out in a regional space. I've, I've grown up here. You're a Gippslander, right? I am a Gippslander, proud Gippslander. Tell us what you love about Gippsland. What I love about Gippsland, I think I love the connection to community, and I've had a lot of conversations, particularly with our local Aboriginal elders around the work that we do. I had the great privilege of growing up in proximity to community-based organisations, but also in the primary school I was within where there was a significant level of interaction between our broader communities and our Aboriginal elders. So very early had a very clear understanding of the importance of connection to country and community and what that meant. What I know now as an adult and still working uh, with our local elder community is that was informing all of my understanding around the importance of connection and intergenerational connectivity within communities more broadly and having a very firmly entrenched sense of responsibility and accountability informs your practice and what you do and how you operate and interact with people around you. So I think that's probably reflected in where I've ended up in terms of work and in terms of staying within Gippsland and trying to build a good solid foundation of decision-making practice and opportunity in the governance space across our region. But it's a really good launching off space to be embedded within communities that I know full well will hold me to a level of accountability on a daily basis, whether or not I ask for that opinion. (laughs) So there is something about being connected to communities and knowing that you'll have that level of responsibility. But the other thing I did learn, and this was particularly important, and we'll talk about it a bit more when we talk about, uh, I guess, health boards and, and consumers, is when I was initially unwell about 18 years ago, I have a rare autoimmune disease called Wegener's granulomatosis. Mm. It was the same autoimmune disease that uh, Mark Colvin, for those who are familiar with ABC Journal, Mark Colvin, he passed away in recent years. He also had Wegener's and then had a, a breast cancer diagnosis mm. about now six years ago. And that great level of what I always saw as accountability and a responsibility community also served to wrap around me in a very solid way to provide a level of care and support and active encouragement that I had within that community. So there's this really lovely balance between being 
accountable in a leadership role and in a governance context, but also knowing that having driven a broad range of that work within a community in a regional setting, that that comes back to support you yeah. in terms of your work within community and when things go wrong for you, that it's there to wrap around you as well. So oh. I'm pretty lucky to be living in Gippsland. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful example of how engagement is that two-way street. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that we often don't really understand in relation to boards, because there's always that misconception that boards are unattainable, they're hard to reach, there's something that are misunderstood, there's something very almost um, not clear. We talk a lot about transparency, but then when you ask someone what a board does, if they don't have that immediate exposure to it, they can find it very difficult to explain it. For me, about breaking down those barriers is also about having a level of engagement directly with your stakeholders and your communities to the point where they do have access to understanding the ins and outs of how you make your decisions, why you're making them and what the impacts are going to be so that you can truly inform your own practice in both ways. You can inform community about what you're doing, but they have a direct opportunity to be engaged with you mm. in governance as a board, either appointed or elected. What was your first board and how did you get involved in that first board? I was one of, uh, as many people describe these kinds of things, you, you wander into roles not expecting that that's where you're going to be. So like many people, I'd been on um, not-for-profit organisation committees from time to time. I'd been on the preschool committee. I'd done those sorts of things and enjoyed it, but never really saw much of it as being a pathway to anything else. I then had my initial consumer experience and found myself engaged with our local health service and through that um, engagement as a patient was approached to be part of the uh, then community advisory committee uh -huh. that existed in that service which they really first kicked off you know we're talking quite some time back then so my initial diagnosis was now about 18 years ago but there's that I guess it was a, a political imperative around having more of a focus on health consumers, particularly in health boards, mm. around engagement. And as time progressed, there was a direct desire on the part of boards and the minister's office at the time to have health consumer representation sitting on boards. So as that body of work was, was coming on board, I don't know that there was a lot of clarity around what that would mean and what level of support that would require but I think I was lucky to be in that initial cohort that came in. So for a lot of boards where there were seven seats at the table, they increased them to eight or nine. And I went in to one of those spots at uh, Latrobe Regional. Sat in there for a while and was very much the rookie on the board. Was very, very fortunate to have exceptional mentors and very generous and extremely patient people and anyone who knows me knows that I run hard and fast, so I'm desperate to get in, make change, make it all happen immediately. And I'd say I was probably even um, more enthusiastic and inspired, <laughs> but probably a little less informed when I'd started in that space, but allowed me to fail safely. And I think that's something that I talk about quite a bit when working with boards and directors is I had a lot of people around me who allowed me to build trust quite rapidly who actively encouraged me to ask questions. And you know, one of the really practical things for boards is understanding how to be able to do that for new directors coming in. And I sat in my first board meeting, I remember sitting there just watching and 
watching the world go by and thinking, well, great, this is terrifying. Not really sure how I'm going to hold my own in this space. There's a lot of really smart people sitting around the table and I'm not really sure what I bring to this. I couldn't quite see the fit. But by the end of the meeting, one of my mentors in the room, and it was uh, Keith Hamilton, who was also one of our local members, actively encouraging me to have a question. Mm-hmm. Please ask a question. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, it's going to be a silly question. And he spent quite a bit of time engaging with me about the importance of just getting your skills up and getting to that space where irrespective of what the question was that I was going to bring to the table, whether it be that meeting or another one, that I really did need to start building that muscle around being confident in the space and confident in engaging. And often on boards we'll talk about the skill set the board members bring, whether it's legal, whether it's financial, whether it's more of a community engagement perspective or something more compliance and risk-focused we often forget that there are a range of other skills that you need to be able to exercise around the table to engage with that cohort, and it's not simple. So I was really very, very fortunate that that room had a significant level of awareness and preparedness to bring on someone who was fairly obvious to everyone because it was my first time sitting around a board table in a substantive way and quite actively encouraged that, what's your question today? What's your next question? And I think it's always think it's interesting that those new people around a board table, whether it's new to that board or indeed new to the board table altogether, that newness really brings a different perspective. So can bring incredible value to that board table because you're new to the boardroom or new to that boardroom and you see things differently. So it can never be undervalued, I think, that newness. It's actually a real strength sometimes in the boardroom rather than a perceived weakness. And one of the difficulties I think boards do find at the moment, and it can be very challenging to get to that very safe landing space where boards can embrace that, is that level of discomfort and the challenge around being comfortable with being uncomfortable. I've sat in a number of boards, goodness knows I probably sit in a few now, where it is quite clear in a number of instances that I may have to preface just to get people to a level of comfort, that I know what I'm presenting them with is something they're going to feel uncomfortable with. So it's almost like directly engaging with the conversation around and understanding that I know what I'm about to say to you is going to give you a moment of pause. I know what I'm suggesting Mm -hmm. is going to have a level of reaction potentially, is going to feel a little disruptive, is not going to sit comfortably, but we need to have this conversation. And... That's hard when you're new, but if someone who is new has a level of opportunity either created by a board to have that conversation or has some level of skill or awareness about how to preface that or how to get themselves comfortably knowing that they can ask it and feel uncomfortable and still walk away and it's okay, then that's important too. And That's a real challenge for boards and there's a very distinct tension in board spaces around particularly disruptors and non-traditional leaders feeling potentially ostracised by the group think of a very comfortable board set and not feeling they can go in there and just ask the disruptive question. But the, the trick for any board 
really is to understand that if you're not having those conversations in the board, someone else is having those conversations about you somewhere else and it will come and bite you at some point. So you've really got to get around those things that you feel least comfortable with and find a way as a board to encourage them. And if that means having someone in the room who can literally slow the conversation and just say to everybody, you know what? I think we're feeling a little unsettled. It's okay. Let's just keep going with it. Call it out, signpost it as you go. It's really good trust building within boards. But for some, it can be challenging and difficult. And it's exhausting for those who are the signposts along the way. Mm -hmm. And there's an important level of recognition that we need to give to getting around those disruptors and those engagers Mm -hmm. who are persistently trying because you run the risk they'll walk away if they feel they're the only one in the room that are putting the other sides of arguments or trying to bring in a different perspective to the group. So you've got to be able to hang in as a board cohort to be able to do that effectively. And you've been the chair of boards before and the things I'm hearing from you now about being upfront, about being uncomfortable and encourage uncomfortableness you know, I think if a board is always comfortable, they're probably not doing their job very well. So really encouraging it and expecting it. What are some of the other ways that as the chair, you have really led that possibly diverse groups or diverse skills and experience or, you know, other voices to be heard and led that group in that uncomfortableness? What are some other ways that you've used to make that happen? I think sometimes what you do need to be prepared to do is get comfortable in the silence, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely nerve-wracking for directors a lot of the time, can be completely unnerving for a chair to let the room sit. I know the first few times I did it, it just felt terrifying because there's almost that anticipation of, like, well, now in a, we're now in a silence. I can see that this is eyes down. No one's going to look at me at this point. So you know just being able to observe the room that there's a level of discomfort. And it's often around highly challenging issues. We're not talking about just doing your run through your basic board agenda. It's people usually pretty primed by the time you get into those spaces and there's a, there's a challenge. But feeling comfortable to let the room just sit so that there is an awareness mm-hmm. that there is broadly around the table a level of discomfort in itself is quite a skill. Mm-hmm. Not filling the void and letting the group in themselves get naturally to a point of the next conversation and that's really hard particularly if you're a strong chair it's something I have to watch quite carefully because I can be very firm and very direct I run a tight meeting usually because they're quite heavy in terms of content but I will be running through my mind at the same time I need to back this away and allow for that conversation to happen And let the board take that conversation where it needs to go and trust within myself that I can get that safely to where it needs to be in terms of a conclusion. That's difficult because it means you have to sit with the discomfort of not saying anything, (laughs) knowing that the room's probably struggling with where to go next, but just let them take it there and just keep that flow and keep everyone engaged and keep it moving while you're processing enough of it to then wrap it up Mm. and find where that's safe. You basically often think of it in a visual sense. There's a whole heap of stuff going around and you're just letting that plane glide in. Just Mm. let it get into a safe landing. But don't pull it up so hard that everyone's like, right, we're just going to shut down this conversation. I don't want to jump in. And just give some of those really gentle guiding 
opportunities within your board, particularly if you've got some more quiet members or some newer members to your board, I know this is uncomfortable. I know this is challenging. This is going to take us some time. We don't need to resolve it today, but we need to have these conversations. So let's just keep working it through mm. and bring that conversation forward. When it works well, it works beautifully. When it doesn't, you've also got to be able to call that too. So you do have to know, and part of that's just using your, your board chair muscle to the point where you know that it automatically is the time where you need to intervene. Yeah. They need to be safe spaces. The conversations need to be such that you're not going to damage the capacity of the board to interact mm. more robustly and vigorously with each other over time. You don't want to burn everybody in one conversation because you'll never get another good one out of them again. So there will be times where you need to intervene and say, okay, let's just take a break. And that can be a physical break. For boards, often there's a real reluctance to just stop, mm. take a break, everyone just go for a walk for a minute and let's come back and do it again. And it is something I've learned, particularly in local government, where things can get quite heated, where the debate can be quite solid. I think one of my colleagues said to me once, gee, you'll, you'll call an adjournment. And I will, and I'll call for an adjournment even from outside of the chair mm. as a councillor sitting in that space. There's no point having everyone sit in a tangle in a room for the sake of it being good sport for those watching. The decision-making process is not going to be best informed by a struggling room of decision-makers. So giving everyone a few minutes just to step it out and take some time back and get into a good frame of mind around bringing those conversations back to the table is really important. Hi, it's Helia. I'm just popping in to say thanks for listening and to do a bit of a shout out to some fabulous listeners who are helping spread the word about this podcast. In particular, thanks Sally up in Sydney, who's sharing the word across New South Wales. Anna, who I met very recently from Brisbane, who's sharing the word in Queensland. And Marita and Zora, who are my international ambassadors. A big welcome to new listeners who have been introduced by this Fab Four, from the USA to India to Norway, Qatar and more, and across Australia. So if you're listening and you know someone who would enjoy this podcast, please feel free to share it. Just scroll on down on your phone to find the share button and you can message or email someone directly. Thanks. Now, back to the show. Thinking about council... I'm not sure if your council is one of them, but increasingly councils are webcasting their council meetings and or have the community there and then observing. They are open meetings. How does that impact that, you know, that struggle for the sitting in the discomfort, that struggle for the right decision? What's the impact there? What are your thoughts? It's really interesting because we've gone to live stream. So live stream for us started in my mayoral terms. So we gave that a, a good solid test run at that point. So we went straight to Facebook Live to start with. We've now gone over to YouTube for a number of reasons. From a management perspective, it's much easier. Facebook can be a little more unwieldy to utilise in that space. What I have noticed is that the number of people attending the meetings proper has reduced significantly now that we are available on a casted frame, but I think the awareness of the decision-making, because people can go back and check. Mm. So I can say, at the 33 minute of go and have a look, this is exactly what I said, people can actually go and check what it was. They can also replay that conversation. There's also an opportunity to see the entirety of the room, and when you're sitting in a room proper in, in a gallery, you can 
I guess, get distracted by the other things going on around you. And when you're watching that and you're watching the fullness of a room from a different perspective, the conversation itself actually captures your attention a little bit more than the visual, mm. whereas when you're in the room, the play of the room is probably a little bit more at the forefront. So if you've got a full crowd, and you'll see this in any elected government space, your elected officials will play to the crowd if they've got a big crowd. If there's nobody there, they won't bother. People are only ever going to try and do that. So those rules in a boardroom where everything's through the chair do apply in local government, but they tend to be less proactively managed because the reality of the situation is it's popularly elected. Mm. So people are bringing matters that are of interest to their constituents into the room for debate and they're wanting to make a bit of an impression. So it does change it a bit. What is really interesting for boards and local government as well is the challenges around social media that that then brings to the fore once you start engaging in whether it be a webcasting space or, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it is. Twitter seems to be a real challenge Mm -hmm. because of the pace that exists with it and how quickly conversations can turn. And I do know of some organisations who've stepped away Mm. from that space because they don't feel they can manage it. I don't necessarily think that's wise because I do strongly believe, and we were just talking about it earlier, if you're not out there talking about it, someone's going to be talking about you anyway. You might as well be in the conversation. But I'm extremely comfortable in social media. So I engage as a board director. I engage as a chair of organisations. I engage as an elected official. And there really aren't a lot of conversations that are out of bounds. But I also apply the principles, and it's quite clearly indicated on all of my platforms, that if you're having a conversation you wouldn't be prepared to have in my lounge room, Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't tolerate if you were sitting in my lounge room, then don't expect to have it on my social media account. That took me a while to get to the point of being comfortable with excluding people from conversations, but now I don't worry about it at all. (laughs) doesn't stop me having difficult conversations, but the tone and the level of respect that needs to exist within those conversations is a minimum standard for me. So getting organisations to the point where they feel comfortable around having an authorising environment around social media is really important. But the other thing too is it's an engagement platform now that so many members of our community are using. If you're not out there engaging and you're still relying on paper-based surveys, talking to the people who walk through your front door, then 80% of your audience have just been left out of any of your community engagement and consultations. So getting boards particularly to a space where they can engage proactively whether it is by webcasting whether it is by having an open board meeting every now and then or whether it's about having your board directors directly engaging with the consumers of your services is just it's essential now if your board's scared of it acknowledge it but then you need to get some support in being able to do it effectively and safely because goodness gracious if you do it badly you can end up in more of a tangle than than you had to start with. But ignoring it and hoping it goes away is a very naive position for a board to be in. And it's stalking you, whether you like it or not. It's going to just keep creeping up behind you. And there is nothing worse for a board director, and I have this often when I'll go into services and I'm doing some work with them, and I will tell them what I know is happening and what's being spoken about in relation to their service to their capacity, even in relation specifically to directors, individuals or as a group, 
and they're horrified because they don't know. You're operating from a a very vulnerable and ill-informed position if you don't know what others are saying about you. You might not like it, but you need to know what it is so that you can effectively engage with it. And social media really is one of the platforms you've got to get into whether you like it or not. If you are going to be an effective governor of an organisation, whichever sort of organisation that is, if you don't know what your people are saying and what they need and want and desire, you're going to find that governance of the organisation fairly challenging as well, I would say. Absolutely. And the concept of leaning into those conversations, even if they are extremely difficult, is important. Hell, you're on for you, even in terms of facilitating those difficult conversations when you're in a room full of people, you know, the first thing you do is go to the heart of the difficulty of it. The easy stuff, you know, that's the low-hanging fruit. We can all do that. There's quite a, a skill and technique, which we can all learn. It's wonderful to see someone who thinks they couldn't do it then be able to, to build that strength in their skill and do it well. But leaning into those really difficult conversations is important and doing that effectively in social media is essential because it will get a run on rapidly. And I've had those moments, I've prepared a post, I've sat there and thought, oh, I don't want to put this out there because you know it's going to start an avalanche. And I described to it once to some boards that I was doing some work with, the first few times you do it and it's a contentious post or it's something that you want to put up that doesn't work particularly well, you're literally going to feel like every one of those responses is someone standing at your front door trying to kick it in. Get comfortable with it. What can you do? How can you engage? Can't ignore it. A good example of one that I saw, Barwon Health coming off this recent ransomware attack incident around it and Frances Diver and her crew have put together some content In an appropriately timed way, which I think is important as well, you've got to understand how that looks um, and what that means in terms of what you put forward. But if anyone wants to have a look at, it's on their LinkedIn, I know it was certainly on, on Facey, it's a good one to have a look at because it shows you a level of acknowledgement in terms of the organisation. It gives enough context to demonstrate a willingness to see the challenges that's caused not only for the stakeholder group but for the organisation. But it also ties in beautifully staff as stakeholders and brings in the human factors of the conversation. So one of the great challenges often around services is not understanding that you're not a facility. Mm. You've actually got inbuilt human factors and and your staff cohorts and your broader networked community is part of the infrastructure that supports your organisation. But the Barwon Health response that went out in recent days is, is sure solid. I'll make sure I put a link to that in the, in the show notes as well as a great, not the perfect, but a great example of how that can be done well. Yeah, and coming off the back of bad news as well, and there's often a real challenge for boards when something went wrong, I think it was um, Heart Foundation around some of their ads that they had and then had to mm. come out to talk again about we think we got that wrong. Acknowledging error is essential and don't wait for someone else to do it. If you're someone who's engaged proactively in these spaces and you're watching it happen, and I often describe it as, oh, I'm watching a car crash, I'm watching a car crash. And I saw those ads roll out and thought, oh, oh, crap, this isn't going to end well for anybody. And you can see it spiralling, but then the pressure of the market to point out what you've done wrong, how you have messaged, branded, 
I guess, triggered responses. And I think that was really clear in that particular campaign where there was a triggering of an emotive response about something that was too particularly sensitive to that. And for for good reason, It, it wasn't well executed. But then to try and pick it up really just had to come straight out and say, you know what, we got this wrong. Mm. And thank you for telling us we got this wrong. Not arguing the reasons why you did it. No one's all that interested in why you got to that point. No one wants to hear your justification for why you made a bad decision. They want you to acknowledge it. They want you to acknowledge the impact of that decision upon them. But there's also a very strong sense of justice within communities and stakeholders about standing up for those people who they feel were harmed by what it was that you did. So they might not be feeling personally affronted by the message but they are feeling the need to represent others who they don't feel like had a voice if you don't engage in that and quickly acknowledge error find a way to do that but from a governance perspective you then need to be able to sit as a board and effectively do the autopsy on that what was it and you need to sit in the discomfort of hearing that feedback and For a board, if you want to do it in a quick, rapid-fire way and you don't have a sophisticated mechanism within your board, bring together all of that Facebook feedback, all of the commentary on Twitter, sit in the room, read it out loud to each other. Just sit with it and let it soak in. Some of it is completely unsophisticated and I acknowledge that. But that's still an unsophisticated conversation happening about you, your service or your directorship that's being held in the public domain So you might as well hear it and you might as well discuss it and work through what you would have liked it to look like and what it was around the gateways within your organisation that got you to that space, how you then rectified it and how you're going to stop it happening again. How are you going to do it better next time? Exactly. Oh, Kelly, so much wonderful stuff in this conversation. So we've covered a whole range of things around engagement and communities and patients and embracing those disruptors. So I'm just wondering, what are the main points you would want people to take away from the conversation that we've had today? I think one of the things is be very comfortable in discomfort. Don't feel the great rush. And I had someone say this to me the other day, that we're a very friendly board and and that's very comfortable. I'm I'm okay and not feeling like I'm sitting in a room full of friends sometimes. Mm -hmm. You can be respectful, you can build trust, but it's not about being friends. You've got a job to do. And I do know I'm an outlier in that. I totally accept it. But my level of responsibility and accountability far outweighs my need to be liked. I'm okay with that. I'll have moments where it feels terribly, terribly uncomfortable. But be okay with that discomfort. If you don't have a level of self-awareness, so that you can at least engage in getting enough skills, build, support or mentoring opportunities in getting to a point of feeling really comfortable with it. When you're in moments of significant challenge in terms of issues emerging, problems, competitive relationships, just difficulty generally at a board level, when you feel within yourself that you need to pull back, that's the point where you need to lean in. So do exactly the opposite to what you think you need to do and get yourself enough support so that you can do it. Don't walk away. We've all had those moments where we're sitting on boards where it's difficult and you think it's just easy to walk away. Personally, yes, but the greater good is not served by the true leaders and disruptors walking away. So lean in 
get enough support for yourself so that you can do well and succeed because you need some wins. I think when you are challenging and questioning and providing feedback that is sometimes challenging for your colleagues, you still need to be able to get some wins. So make sure you're getting feedback not only within your own group, which can be difficult to hear, but have some independent opportunities for feedback that really do give you some insight into how you're regarded. And what you might find is that that body of information looks quite different to how you perceive yourself. So be very aware of those sorts of things and get some really solid resources that you can go back and reflect on if you find that your practice is slipping. Because at the end of the day, really solid practice is going to be informed by good work and well-informed work and that needs to be informed by some good solid governance principles. So if you're a board that doesn't do a lot of professional development, doesn't really get a lot of opportunity to explore the way you're operating as a board, there's a bit of a challenge. So get some stuff in there. But be self-aware, build a strong foundation for your principles of governance around good resourcing. Keep learning. And if you really, really are struggling, reach out, get some support, even encourage someone to come and do some observations with your board and give you some really solid feedback, which I've done a few times. I love it because I love a board who trusts enough to bring in, as I said once, bring in Darth Vader to sit there and give him some feedback. But it's a really good way to build trust within the room to have someone who can then walk away and not have to sit immersed within the, the culture of your board and give you some feedback as well. And again, like the newcomer, they see things that those that have been involved for a while don't see. So it's a great way of getting that awareness. Oh, Kelly, that is just fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. I know the Take On Board community are going to get enormous amount out of hearing your pearls of wisdom. Thank you for being with me here today. Absolute pleasure to talk with you, Helia. We could talk for days, could absolutely talk for days. Thanks for the opportunity. Great to talk to you. Hi there, it's Halia. That's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women together. So it's great to be able to share these conversations that I'm having with these amazing group of women with you. Now, can I ask a favour? Could you share this podcast with someone you know? Perhaps you can share it with some of your board colleagues or someone else that you know that's interested in exploring all things boards and governance. With your help, we can grow the Take On Board community. Last but not least, if you want to continue the conversation, you can also join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, where there's lots of great discussions, tips, tricks and resources being shared. I would love it if you can join in the conversation there. You can find it by searching Take On Board in Facebook. Thanks for listening and tune in next week for another fabulous conversation.